Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Plus Four podcast, exploring the big wide world of Hickory Golf. I'm your host, Rob Berman. Episodes of this podcast reflect the personalities, the passion, and the pursuit of the game as it was played in the pre-1935 era across the world. Please subscribe and hit the like button to help us build our network of golfing fans coordinated in the United States through the Society of Hickory Golfers. And visit us online at plus4.org. Well, gentlemen, thank you for joining me today. This will be the inaugural podcast of the Plus Four podcast, and we're excited to talk about the origins of the Society of Hickory Golfers. And we'll go back even earlier than the SOHG, but could we just go around and each of you give a brief bio of uh, your background in Hickory Golf, maybe starting with you, Tad? Well, I started collecting Hickory Shafted Clubs in the 70s. And by the late 80s, I had been convinced to start playing hickories by Bobby Farino from up in Williamsburg. And my first venture playing a tournament was the golf collectors meeting in Palm Springs, where I played with three of the best players from the West Coast and came in and everybody told me I won. And then I found out I lost to John Sherwood who played with four clubs that he took out of his room and uh, <laughs> shot even par. So that was a little discouraging. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I've been involved in the Hickory playing game for for years, and it's one that I enjoyed. And ultimately, because of urging by guys like Rob and Roger and Ralph and that, I actually started making clubs. So... Yeah, it's been a long journey. Thank you, Tad. Rob, could you give us a brief background? Well, I first started playing golf when I was a oh, fourth or fifth grader with a set of wood shafted clubs my dad bought at a farm auction. Played most of them or till most of them broke, although I still have two, but really didn't come into playing hickory golf until I joined the Golf Collector Society when I lived in Omaha. One of my now friends there encouraged me to join back in the early 80s. And my first event was a Heart of America championship played at Denison, Iowa. From there, just kept going. And uh, 99, 2000, so about eight, nine, 98, 99, when the National Hickory Championship first started, I missed the first one, but went to the second one. And that was the first two-day tournament that anybody had held. And it was just too much fun. And from there, I just expanded into other events. The rest is history, as they say. Till now, we're uh, out here in the Northwest. We have a great playing group that are mostly are all members of the society, which is pleasing. Thank you, Rob. And Roger, how about your background? About 1981, I moved to Grand Rapids. I had yet to play golf ever in my life. I op- opened a photo studio after 10 years in, in Lansing, Michigan, and I needed an assistant, a friend of mine, a client of mine, was friends with a fellow who had a son who needed a job and was an avid uh, amateur photographer, a guy named Ralph Livingston. So I hired Ralph. We worked together for quite a long time. A few years later, about 1985, we both decided we wanted to learn to play golf. He had played a little before, but I had never played. And within a year or two, Ralph found hickory clubs. Then I found hickory clubs and 
he decided to start playing with them and then I joined him and I think his first event was the first Ypsilanti GCS meeting. For some reason or other, I let him go to the meeting to play in the tournament. And then I came the next day just for the convention. I'm not quite sure how that worked. But anyway, the next thing, of course, we went to the Chicago show uh, the next spring, the Dayton show in the winter and tournament and started playing at that point, late 80s. Something like something like that continued. Uh, I think I think I might have been at that second National Hickory Championship with Rob. I think it was the second one I went to. Um, but anyway, we've just continued with a great group here in Michigan uh, that plays all the time. So, gentlemen, the SOHG website lists eight people as being founders of the society. They are Tad Moore, John Sherwood, Ralph Livingston, Chuck McMullen, Roger Hill, Randy Jensen. Winfield Paget and John Crow Miller. Of those, some of them are no longer with us. Let's first remember those that are no longer with us. Tad, you want to begin that? Ralph and of course John Sherwood. We don't have Miller involved, and we don't have uh, Win Paget involved. Yeah, yeah. I th- everybody else is still going, aren't they? Still, I mean, you're still they're still involved in in Hickory Golf of our type, anyway, the society type. Well, let's take each of those four just for a moment to just remember their involvement. So let's start with Ralph. Let's have some recollections about Ralph and his energy. Well, he pretty much started the movement. I remember meeting him down in just outside of Kansas City. Randy and I were going down to play an event. And Randy says, there's this guy from Michigan that's going to be in Kansas City. We should go down and meet him because he's all hot about Hickory Golf. And here's this squirrely little guy in a van and he opens up the back and he's got two of those black cardboardy kind of cases and he opens these cases and there's just clubs and lots of clubs. And we played golf that day. And that was when I first met Ralph and enthusiastic. I would guess Roger is not quite strong enough word. Not uh, nearly. No, he was just, he was just on it. And it really, his energy brought a lot of other people. Sure. Sure. Would use the term keen. He said, yeah. Well, Ralph was a keen golfer. And that, again, it, it doesn't even begin to explain that his enthusiasm was just overwhelming. But you have to understand that that was Ralph about many things. And when I first met Ralph, he was keen about motorcycles. He had been keen in Florida before he moved to Michigan about drag racing and he was very keen and, and to the end was still keen about high fidelity equipment. He had just insane stuff. But it translated into hickories and he chose one way to go and, and pursued it to the nth degree. And it was wonderful for people around him because if you wondered about hickory golf and you got Ralph on the phone, there was nothing left to chance. You would find out everything about the joys of Hickory Golf from Ralph. And Roger, when you say one way to go, do you mean Tom Stewart or something different? Yeah, we both kind of looked at what we had found originally. And I had gotten some clubs. My wife had bought me three clubs, one of which was a, a nickel braid mashie, which is still in my bag. And the first clubs that Ralph found were Stewart's. And Somehow or other, he found Randy, and it probably through one of the show, probably the early show that he went to, 
And of course, Randy told them that Stewart's were it and Ralph went that way and just <laughs> completely figured it all out and, and, you know, did the book and just went crazy in that direction. But in the meantime, pulled the rest of us along with it. Well, Roger, I want to get back to your book on George Nickel, but we'll do that in a little bit. How about John Sherwood? I didn't know John. Could you tell me a little bit about him? Super guy. Probably responsible for one of the two people most responsible for bringing clubs from Great Britain, Scotland, back to, into the States. John uh, would come across for meetings and he'd have two or three cases full of clubs or more. And Roger and Ted, you knew him before I did even when he would, uh, he had a place at Palm Springs. I was fortunate to play with John a couple of times. And speaking of keen, he was, he was keen. But as Tad said earlier, it was amazing. He would go to one of those cases and pull out four or five clubs and go out to the first tee and shoot some score in the 70s. And uh, you look at these clubs and some of them, the whipping was coming loose and it didn't matter. Some of them had grips on or didn't and didn't matter. He'd still shoot, you know, right around par. Great guy to hang out with. I think that he was probably responsible for bringing over between 500 to 1,000 clubs a year because he actually would ship some separate from those that he brought over. And the ones he brought over, he'd ship them to my house sometimes, and they were the boxes and the bags and the clubs were so dirty. When you, when you <laughs> open them up, I mean, you walked away. You looked like that kid on the... Uh, Snoopy cartoon. Uh, Big uh, Pen. Big Pen. Because it was, it was a mess. And I think one of the greatest times I saw was when he shipped a whole bunch of stuff to Roger before one of the events. And uh, I think it was the one up at Kingsley, weren't Kingsley, we? Yeah. 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 And, and, and he shipped them to Roger's studio. And literally, things were just taped together and still made it over here. It was amazing. 35 <laughs> boxes. Oh, my word. <laughs> well, I, I, remember, I remember that time. And two of the clubs that I pulled out of whatever case it was actually are on my wall. They're <laughs> not in a bag or in a rental. They're actually on the wall. Clubs yeah. that I had, hadn't found yet. He was, uh, uh, Rob, he had... Uh, that all of the uh, trade fairs in Scotland and England, he had connections. He had pickers that would find clubs and bring them. And then he, of course, would buy every single one, whether it was good or bad. He bought right. all of them so that all these guys knew that he was the guy to sell to. And he drove a Volvo station wagon. And I, won, I remember one time Roger and I showed up at Muscleboro and Volvo, you couldn't even see out of it. It was literally packed with the golf clubs. <laughs> it, was, it was amazing. I experienced that once. Susan and I were in Scotland touring, and I was playing now and then. We were stopping at antique shops. We were in southern Scotland somewhere. I remember what town it was. We're in this antique shop, and we're walking through it. And so I asked the guy if he had any golf clubs, and he said, yeah, there's some back over there somewhere. So I had a door, there was a door that was open. And as I pulled to close it, there's a pile of clubs leaning in the corner behind the door. And there were some really cool clubs. And I said, well, you know, and I 
you know, asked him what he wanted for him, if they were available. He said, no, there's a guy that comes through here and I, and he buys everything I have. So I'm saving those for him. And I didn't go any further. I figured it was Sherwood. Yeah, he was, uh, he was quite the guy. He found all kinds of stuff. So, so Rob, what he would do is he would bring over a box of clubs that was for Randy and a box of clubs that was for Ralph and a box of nickels that was for Roger and a box of Gibsons that was for me. Mm. And so when we would show up at his room, he already had the box of stuff and then you'd open it up and I usually bought everything he brought, but, and, uh, and then, and sometimes he'd have clubs laying on the bed and it'd be a Gibson. And I say, Hey, what's this doing here? And he said, Oh, I forgot, you know, and, but he, he was great. And he would, he took care of us and it, and it certainly helped all of us that were trying to find us the best representative clubs of the makers that we liked. Ralph ended up doing his book on Stuart. Roger did his on nickel and I never finished mine on the Gibson stuff. So I wish I had, but I don't know who I would have had publish it. So, uh, but Ralph got, got lucky there. And I think without Jim Davis's help, he may never have published his book. We kept telling him he had to do it. And he, well, he was always looking for that last club that he didn't have. So, mm-hmm. but Jim convinced him to, to do it. We kept telling him that once you publish it, more will show up. Yeah. He, he just, he wouldn't go for that. And yeah. uh, I noticed on, on Facebook that Juve Warner uh, posted a Stewart club that I'd never seen before. And it's not in Ralph's book. Um, a really, really interesting iron for what that's worth. Can you guys tell me about Winfield Padgett and John Crow Miller? I can tell you a little bit about Winfield. So so Winfield was in the company at a family, very large printing company in Dallas, Texas. It was a very old, very successful printing company. And I think their specialty was doing mail catalogs for Nordstrom's and Dillard's and places like that that were, that were based in the Dallas area that printed catalogs. Really good guy, very active in playing Hickory Golf. And he was went to Europe, went to Scotland. He became a member of the uh, RNA. At some point in time, when things were going upside down the last few years, they closed the company down. And Wynn now is suffering from uh, what I've been told, uh, a little bit of dementia or Alzheimer's. And so he, I don't think he's even playing anymore. But he's a, he was a member there at Brook Hollow. And I think... Personally, I think he's the one that, that got Don Crow Miller playing Hickory Golf. But Wynn is, is a really good guy. And yeah. Wynn helped me when I was getting my company started. I feel sorry that he, his health has failed on him. Hey, Ted, did, do I, did I understand he has Parkinson's as well? That's what I had heard. Uh, yeah. He had yeah. posted some stuff on, um, on Facebook about um, some vocal training that he's doing for Parkinson's. So, yeah, yeah, a one yeah. A wonderful guy. He was he was on the um, he was on the executive committee of the USGA, and that was one of those little little perks that kind of helped us along when uh, he was on the executive committee. And um, 
uh, what's his name? Um, um, who was the president at that point? Um, Trey Holland. Yeah, Trey Holland was the president at that point, and we were sort of able to have the benefit of of the USGA a little bit behind us at that point. Not not too much because they couldn't really push too hard, but it was yeah. real nice to have that that going. Yeah, they I, played in my uh, Southern Hickory Four Ball around. 2005 or six, I think, somewhere right around there. I'm pretty sure they played it. So it must have been, first one was in 2003. So it must have been four or five they played there in LaGrange. Yeah. Roger, could you tell me a little bit about John Crow Miller and then uh, Rob maybe talk about Randy Jensen? Well, you know, the interesting part about Miller is that I don't really know how he got started and maybe you guys do. I, I don't. All I know is that when, when the Hickory Grail, the sort of invitational event that David um, Hamilton and Ralph put together started, all of a sudden there was John Crow Miller and two other guys from Texas involved, Bill Farmer and Wynn Paget, And Ralph was willing to let John take the reins of being the secretary. Ralph, Ralph was the, the starter, but he didn't want the organizational responsibility of running it. Miller's are completely devoted to the NHC. I think he's played there every time. He's the secretary of the Hickory Grail and has been very, you know, very involved in, in Hickory golf. But Rob, do you know how he got started? No, I don't. I'm guessing if Ralph may have, also, the guys in the guys in Scotland. I know he's been really close to uh, Philip Truitt, but the Grail being a function of the British Golf Club Society, there may have been some of that that pulled him in. I don't know. Yeah, that's true. I, I also think it was Wynn because you know Wynn was a member of Brook Hollow and John joined Brook Hollow, and I honestly believe that Wynn got Farmer playing and probably got Crow Miller playing. You know. Yeah, uh, we all know how John was trying to be a buddy of, right? Because because well, you had the USGA connection, which John wanted to be a part of, right? Um, and you had Miller with all the influence of, over in Europe because he was involved with the Lloyd's of London, and right. so he was going over there, and so he, you know, that, I'm sure that's how that all came about. Yeah. I, I really am. Oh, he was involved. So he was involved with Truett. With yes. probably about the time that that Hamilton was talking with everybody over there about the Grail. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, okay, that would make sense. Yeah, that makes sense. And you're getting absolutely new information that none of us all had. <laughs> yeah, and Win makes a lot of sense because Crow Miller's father was a member at Brook Hollow, and uh -huh. and then John just followed on in those footsteps, and so they would have been there together. Uh, yeah. And John, John would have been been paying attention to win because he was part of the USGA executive committee. Yeah, Rob, let's uh, let's hear a little bit about your buddy Randy from Nebraska. I introduced Randy to Hickory. I didn't know Randy at all when we got there in the late seventies. But one of the things I did during that time is if there was a golf shop within a hundred miles, I would find it and go see it. And this guy opens one right on Dodge Street, which is the main street of Omaha, called Classic Golf. And it was in a garage that was built on the back of a house that fronted on this main street. Just this goofy little place. And back in the corner were 
probably 30 window air conditioners and a few other things because Randy's father had a lot of rental houses and that was part of taking care of them. Anyway, Randy's shop was there. I walk in the door because I found out about this place and Randy's there and there's all kinds of shiny steel shafted clubs around and whatever. And I'm like, you got any wood shafted clubs? And he goes, oh, I don't think so. And so we had a short conversation and I said, well, if you ever get any in, if any bring, brings him in, you know, give me a call. A few days, a few weeks later, I got a call from him. Yeah, somebody brought in a club here you might be interested in. And Roger, it was a, it was a George Nickel Niblick. <laughs> Just a really... Nice looking club, but it had no bounce, probably five degrees of dig. And I just wasn't very interested in that kind of club. And so I turned him down, you know, not being the smartest guy on the block. But anyway, I would stop in from time to time. And I don't exactly know how our friendship started, but we started to hang out once in a while. I remember at that time he was playing steel and hickory, or he started to play hickory then. And the thing he found out when he started playing hickory is he played, he scored better with the hickory than he did with these steels. And he'd been in the PGA professional program and was trying to do an internship. And it just, that wasn't his personality. So I'm in the shop or came in the shop one time and he's trying desperately to make his modern steel shafted clubs play the same way the hickories did because he wanted to score as good as he did with hickories with his steels. And and you guys that know Randy, he's such an analytical person. He was trying anything and everything and measuring this and weighing that. But then when he got started in hickory and playing in hickory, he went to the first NHC and he tried to talk me and going along. And I'm like, nah, you got to go all the way to West Virginia. I don't really have the clubs and yada, yada. And so I didn't go. And when he came back from that tournament, his eyes were about the size of big golf balls. He was just smitten and fell in love with it. And then I, up until this year, went to the, have gone to every NHC since. But Randy was really good for Ralph because he found a lot of clubs for Ralph. I mean, Ralph found a lot himself, but other people helped Ralph collect a lot of these clubs. And I can remember seeing clubs that Randy would find and he'd show them to me before he'd ship them to Ralph. And it's like, why are you shipping that? You should keep that. <laughs> but Randy was a good friend to Ralph and, and was helping him a lot that way. Really good player with Hickory is amazing. His best, his best skill, and I guess that's probably true of most players that are high quality, is his best skill was getting out of trouble. Could always get into trouble, but getting out was another question and he always could. Well, Rob, I know you're pretty good at that yourself. And the uh, SOHG website, suggests that the rules for hickory golf came out of a controversy in 1999 at an outing at lexington kentucky do you guys recall what that was about and why that motivated all of you to figure out some rules for hickory golf i was on the board at the time i'm not sure if roger was but i was the controversy of course involved uh, ralph and uh it's some i'll let uh, i'll let somebody else speak to that but what came out of that was is we had a committee formed. It was myself and, and Chuck McMullen and you know a, a small group of us to, to put together a, a plan for the Golf Collector Society to run tournaments the right way. 
and that's all it was. And it was primarily for that tournament, which was a national championship tournament. And that that's that's how that came about. And then and we did. We had meetings and everything. And then ultimately, I was asked to present it to the Golf Collector Society. And Frank Zadra, I think, was president that year. And I remember getting soundly told no that they didn't have any interest and it really pissed me off so so i think roger or, or rob can tell you better about what the controversy was so it was basically the fact that we hadn't you know they didn't know how to they didn't care and they didn't really care about the individual event they were having a, a scramble and that was the thing that they were more concerned about a hickory hacker scramble mm-hmm well, Roger, you were there, weren't you? Yeah, I was. Yeah, I either played with Ralph in in my group or the group be, ahead or behind. Um, the The Golf Collector Society national event was sort of designed as a hit and giggle. You know, they had a they had a, a, a net division or they had a metal play, and then they had, but they basically had a scramble, and there were people that were playing modern clubs and whatnot. And we had, this had gone on for a while and it had reached a point sort of where there were a lot of good players that were playing competitively um, and they wanted to play real golf. And we had, we sort of thought that was the direction it was going. So what, what happened was the, the, the weather was horribly dry all summer. There was no grass on the golf course and the, the, there was a local rule that was made by the pro shop and announced about 15 minutes before we played, not in writing, but announced from the top of a, a stand or whatever uh, to the assembled group, which didn't include everybody, uh, including it did not include Ralph, that there was a local rule that in the, in the, in the metal play that you could move your ball anywhere on the golf course one card length one scorecard you know so basically a stymie measure mm-hmm. and some people heard that some people didn't so we went out to play and i think a few holes into the round ralph not thinking asked somebody he hadn't heard the rules because he wasn't there yet or he was in in the bathroom or getting coffee or whatever had not heard that local rule and ask a group on an adjoining fairway what the rule was and they said well of course it's a it's a club length anywhere oh club length it turned out that that what he'd done is he'd asked a scramble group he played the rest of the day moving the ball a whole Mm. club length right and when he came in somebody i don't know how it happened at the end because it was he was there just before i was but somehow somebody mentioned that he had moved the ball a full club and they DQ'd him. And the winner came in later and had been apparently doing the same thing, but didn't hear the rules and didn't hear the Ralph situation or came out, I'm sorry, came in before him, left and was eventually declared the winner. We decided at that point that the, that the Golf Collector Society needed to come up with some serious rules for serious golf. And as Tad said, 
they said no we don't want to we don't want to be serious about this mm-hmm. and they to this day do not want to be serious about it gotcha so it seems to me that all of this started with collecting is that fair to say this is all gcs origins and uh serious collecting interests that you all share yeah yeah i mean it it was was all about collecting i mean by by this time i probably had 3500 golf clubs you know uh, and I mean, we all were collecting. It's just that at some point in time, some of us said, geez, wouldn't it be fun to play with these, you know? And then a lot of those people would look at you like, oh, you can't do that. You got to hang it on the wall. It's a collectible, mm-hmm. you know? Or, or they'd say, well, just play the scramble. You know, we're just having a scramble, having fun. Well, you know, by the time we're talking about it was starting to get to be a few more people, you know, not a lot. I don't know. I can't even guesstimate, but my guesstimates have been 25 to 35 people. There wasn't mm-hmm. very many, you know, and uh, so we wanted it done right, you know. And uh, there were a bunch of guys like yourself and Randy and Biasini and, and so on that were yeah. shooting scores. You know, I mean, yeah. really scores, and yeah. and Rob and Ralph and Chuck and a whole bunch of people just kept playing more and more competitively, and nobody was willing to listen to "Oh, let's go play it and giggle" anymore. Well, and the, and the golf now Heritage Society, the old Golf Collectors Society, even I think in this past twelve months, in one of the golf magazines, there was a letter to the editor complaining about. Why are you writing these articles about playing golf? We're collectors. We shouldn't be interested in this playing stuff at all. And it just, as Jimmy Von Lasso says, gravels my ass when they talk like that because they just, they they don't understand that most of us that started collecting had actually played Hickory when we were younger and found it. And when we started playing with it again, it was exciting and it was, fun to shoot a decent score with these old clubs. And they, I mean, I've had several discussions with old collectors are like, we're trying to get them to quit using the word hacker. And, yeah. and oh, it's like, you know, these guys aren't going out there to hack it around. They're going out there to, to play golf and to shoot scores. It's just, it, the golf collector society has been suffering because they can't bring any young people in very much. And I remember sitting in a, a meeting Bill Reed and I both were saying, guys, you got to have people playing Hickory so they understand what this is all about. And then they'll start collecting, which the society is the Society of Hickory Golfers has proven because a lot of our people who started as players are now collectors, yeah. but they're not joining the GHS. Yeah, I'm an example of that. Can you guys talk about what <laughs> collecting what was collecting like before the Internet? You go to a regional or annual meeting to see stuff of the Golf Collectors Society. And that was a really important time. The Dayton show, which unfortunately I've only gone to once, but what a great place to buy clubs and stuff. Yeah. Dallas Verjanic show. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, the airport show. I want to ask you about Verjanic. You know, his website is still out there. Is he no longer living? <laughs> no, I think he's still alive, but he's, he's pretty much left golf. He, he used to be, or still is a coin dealer. Yes. 
and he but he had an auction in conjunction with the Texas meeting, which was the region for the Gulf Collectors Society. Uh, and he would have an auction that same weekend. So there was a reason to show up. And I never was part of that. But Randy would relate to how there would be people come from Europe with stuff to buy and sell or the stuff wow. to sell and play and join in. And many people, and you guys correct me if I'm wrong, but said that that Texas meeting was as good or maybe sometimes better than the annual meeting of the Golf Collectors well, Society. It, yeah, it was always great. I flew in for it all the time. The other one I went to all the time, Rob, was the one in Chicago. It was in uh, mm -hmm. Roseville or Rosemont, something like that. And so you just fly into O'Hare and take the shuttle to the Holiday Inn down there. And that's where the show was. And that was put on by, you know, two guys there that were avid in it, collectors, dealers and everything. And there was always some good stuff there, plus great food and everything that went along with being in Chicago. So every region would have a show. And if you, if you, if you could, you went to them just because you'd find something there. Yeah. And, and Sherwood was one of the main movers in the Chicago show. <laughs> John would drive up in his car and people would, fought, would wait around his room before until he got there. And then they'd follow him out to his car and start picking out of his car before he got the trunk more than just opened yep. and started handing boxes off to people. And they were going through the boxes as they were walking into the rooms. Yep. <laughs> and Roger, this is the 1990s? Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, this is the 1990s. Yeah. Ralph, when, when Ralph went to the first show, he went to, I want to say he went to the Chicago show the January before the Ypsilanti show, which was the first GCS show. And he came back and he just couldn't stop talking about it, mm -hmm. which, you know, sort of Ralph anyway, but he said, you go in this, this giant banquet room and it's covered in golf stuff and hickory clubs everywhere. And he was, he couldn't wait till the next one happened. And that's how I think how he talked me into going to the, at least the, the, trade show and meeting at the at uh, Ypsilanti that year. But Can I was... just say for younger listeners that don't know for Janik, uh, his website is golf for all ages and it still comes up as the top search finder in most of my searches. Hmm. And his wow. selection and his documentation of pricing and everything is astonishing. I love his website. Well, he had, he had auctions all the time, which let him set prices, you know, and find out current values, which was really handy. One of the old time collectors in Seattle had passed away at 95 and his family put the collection up for sale. And Jack Wilson, who's one of our guys in the Northwest, who's no longer with us. And I, Jack says, this guy's got 500 clubs. We need to go see him anyway. So we go up there for a weekend sale and we buy a few things and we go back the next weekend and we buy a few things. And so we're just kind of wandering around looking for there might be something else. And I noticed on top of a cabinet that I could see because I'm taller and nobody else could see there are these pamphlets uh, or something like that. So I start pulling them down and they're copies of Spalding, McGregor, Croydon and a few other companies of their early catalogs from about 1900 through about 1925, 1930. Well, Ferjanic had found it, had gotten these catalogs 
and had printed facsimiles so that in one little pamphlet you had Spalding from 1903 till 1930, mm -hmm. a copy of their catalogs. Uh, and I have those in my desk now. Mm. And I, I refer to those an awful lot. And Ferjanic did that. I have a, a catalog from Standard Golf, the, the people that made the aluminum heads that he reprinted and put out there. I think he and McMullen still communicate because mm -hmm. Chuck is also a coin guy. Ah. Mm. Yeah, they knew each other from that. And the nice, the, the, the one thing that, and this was, a, I, for me, this was a very significant part of collecting early on was that Chuck produced a monthly catalog. Yes. Yeah. Mailed out a monthly catalog to 500 people or whatever. And man, you just couldn't believe what was in there. And that's where you bought some of your original stuff. Yeah. And, and yeah. some of that came from Sherwood, of course. <laughs> <laughs> he was selling to, for Janik, but, but Chuck was pretty, was a pretty good hustler at finding things. And there was everything in those catalogs. I mean, you, there were long noses and there were, you know, commons for 20 bucks and you couldn't wait until that thing showed up. I still have a whole pile of them, um, had some good articles in and so on. Well, Roger, that's a great segue. So in the last 25 years, what is your reaction to the pricing that we now see? What's happened to pricing for these clubs in the last 25 years, in your view? Well, as we, as the Golf Collector Society was growing, that the prices, of course, were going up and up and up. And and then 2007, eight hit, and they sort mm -hmm. of halved. Uh -huh. um, but I think partially because of the economy, but partially because a lot of things, and, and this is more specifically about books, but I think it it, it holds true for the whole market that that all of a sudden when the market crashed and it did for lots of collectibles, you know, worldwide at, in 2007, eight, all of a sudden people started selling things. Plus a lot of the members, the collectors society were, were older and were starting to sell collections. And we started finding out that there were some things. And again, I'm, I'm talking about books here, but you started finding that what was a very rare, very expensive book, all of a sudden everybody had one in their collection they just didn't let anybody else know, <laughs> you know, uh -huh. clubs are a little different, but long noses, you know, when you were buying a long nose in, in 2005, you were paying top dollar for one with a crack in the face that, that had a bad Tom Morris mark. And in 2008, you were buying museum quality for the same price mm -hmm. because all of a sudden we found out that everybody had those, <laughs> you know? There were big piles of those that were bought in Scotland in the early days of the GCS. They bought them by the barrel, but nobody knew they were out there until people started selling their collections and started letting things go. One of the challenges now for old time golf collectors is they want to sell their collections and nobody wants them, or at least they don't want 90% of what they have yeah. for what that's worth. I saw a post. Uh today or yesterday or somewhere along there on Facebook where some guy had bought a storage unit and had kind of a lot of nice old, really unusual hickories in it, old clubs in it. And so obviously the guy never tried to sell them, just collected them and gonna let my kids deal with it. And uh, 
And so they dealed with it by just sticking all of his stuff in the storage unit till they figure out what to do with it. And ultimately they just sold it. So, I mean, I don't imagine that, I imagine the guy got a great buy, you know, and for a while we tried to get the old timers to get their friends to bring their clubs out and to sell them, you know, and nobody seemed to want to do that, to bring them to a golf collectors national meeting or something like that, you know, and I mean, some people did and they brought them and wanted, you know, 1990 prices and they when they wouldn't sell they didn't sell they took it all home you know uh but i do see i follow it some and i see stuff that's pretty good stuff is starting to bring better prices again but it's only the really good stuff i think when i knew mike just when i lived in louisville he talked about japanese buyers and other things and tad i've heard you talk about that is there pretty yeah. strong global interest these days no, the global interest is gone. But at one time, uh, there was the Japan market was was huge, and and a little bit in Korea, but but it was just huge in Japan. And and I'm a, I, honestly, I I know those people got taken to the cleaners a lot, but uh, but that's where stuff was going, you know. Uh -huh. So. Yeah. Well, you know, out here in the Northwest, we had the pleasure of seeing the Dick Esty collection. I don't know if you're all sure. familiar with that, but I'll put a link in the show notes about that collection. Who were some of the other big pioneers of collecting in the last generation? Were there notable people that built big collections, some of which might have been broken up or gone to museums? Mm, well, there's two that were in Chicago that were really, really big in golf clubs uh, and have... I think one of them has every bit of good collection as, as Dick's, you know, I mean, there, there's some, there were some serious guys in the Chicago area buying stuff. And, uh, I didn't know any of the old guys back East, uh, just because I didn't travel much back that way in my business or anything. So, but you know, those, those the, the, what is it? McCormick, Roger, one of them. Yeah. Jim McCormick. Yeah. Yeah, the I think it's what he's the guy that does the uh, they do the uh, spices and stuff. I think it's uh -huh. that family. I think it's that. And family. then the other guy was um, he bought a lot of high end stuff going on, you know, and uh, but he had both classic clubs as well as hickory clubs. I mean, Slevin. Slevin. Yeah. Yes, Bill Slevin. Yeah. Yeah. And they're and still alive. All those guys, as far as I know. The McCormick and the Slevin collections are presumably still together. Yeah. Yeah. As far as I know, those guys still have their, their all their clubs. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Corm the, yeah. Cormick's collection is in the, in the book that um, the great collections of the world. Uh -huh. he's, he's, he's reputedly got a, a collection that's every bit as good as the RNAs. Mm. Wow. Amazing. I'm, I'm looking at that book right now, just looking at the table of contents. And um, Dick McDonough, is he still with us? Yeah. He yep. was a, wasn't he books? Uh, yeah, books and, and artwork too. Yeah. yeah. Interesting list of people. In, uh, in the collective age of the three of you, how, how many clubs do you think still exist that may never have been hit? Do a you lot. see them, a lot of them? Yeah, I think so. 
Yeah, and what do you run across what, fairly often? What do you three think? Do you think there are more really old clubs in somebody's wall somewhere? Oh yeah, we just I don't know, Tad. I don't know if you saw uh, Scott Patrick's posting on Facebook about clubs that Willie Tanner had sent him to restore. <laughs> yeah, just this pile of just spectacular clubs, and it's like Willie, I'll buy any and all of them. <laughs> and Willie Tanner was a guy that we met. He's I think he's Scottish. Yes. He, he yeah. can't understand him, so he has to be Scottish. Yeah. But and so Scotty had put uh Scott Patrick had put on there, somebody asked him, Well, those are pretty good. Is that all his collection? And I think Scott's comment was, Oh, Willie's got at least 300 long noses. Yeah. This yeah. is just the and, stuff that needed fixing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but to be in Scotland back in the 1970s 60s and 70s yeah there's uh, people just driving from town to town buying any club that was there and they were buying long noses and pre-1900 18 you know clubs from the 1800s and stuff so th there's a there's still probably are a lot of them out there but a lot of them have been accumulated mm -hmm. can you guys uh, also can you can you reminisce a little bit about over your lifetime the one or two items you've seen that you would want the most <laughs> i can't oh, my wow. wife's standing here i can't tell you <laughs> i um i got the opportunity to see jim mccormick's collection we mm -hmm. uh I, I did the the auction with john mullick a few years ago of ralph's stuff and we were over in chicago picking up things from various collectors berkowitz was one and, and mccormick was another and jim mccormick does a lot of business with mullick and uh you walk in his, his brownstone and on the main floor there here and there are some glass cases fairly mm -hmm. good sized glass cases and the first one i walked up to had a pile of paper sitting in the bottom and i looked at it and it almost broke into tears it was the handwritten hand signed manuscript of the art of putting by willie park that somehow or other Jim managed to get. There's one. And later that evening, he handed me the Claret Jug. And I said, what is this? And he said, well, up until, I can't remember the year. It might have been the 70s, might have been the 80s. There was one Claret Jug. It was the replica of the original one that never leaves the RNA. But it's the one they gave every player. And then they, it got banged up enough that they decided to make another one. And Jim owns that one. And he hands it to me. He says, Here you go. I'm like, is this real? And he said, what do you mean? <laughs> Did you see anything else in here that doesn't look real? I'm like, this is, and then he explained the story. Yeah, I'd like that. That would be a good one too. That's pretty neat. God. Tad, how about you? Oh, gosh. Yeah, I've been fortunate enough to handle a lot of probably pretty cool stuff and golf. But, you know, one of the things that I've, got to see was Roberto DiVincenzo, all of his trophies, and including a letter written by Bobby Jones to him about the Masters and, and that, and a box that they had made for him, silver and that. And it's all that stuff to me, it was just, you know, holding the, 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 the trophies you know and everything and it's just uh really special that that's kind of one thing and i think the 
I never had my opportunity to, to handle an entire set of my, to me, my perfect set of, of Gibson clubs, but I'd love to be able to do that. And that I'd love to have a set of Starella Danglewood woods mm. and irons and everything uh, that, that would be for me because I played with a set of albatrosses for a long time and I love the shape of the Starellas better, but I've never had a chance to buy an entire set ever. Mm, so. That's pretty neat. And Rob, yeah. do you uh, maybe Susan stepped away. Do you want to comment on anything you've seen that would be at the top of your list? The only thing that I'm really chasing anymore are um, those Forg and Peter Pan irons and woods that yeah. came out in 23. I pretty much have, I'm really pleased with what I have laying around. Uh, some of it really special and some of it just stuff. But um, that's one thing that I, I will continue looking for as we go forward. One of the nice things that I'm a part of right now is that the Estee family, since Dick has died, have put the collection on up for sale. And yes, it's for sale. And I'm, I'm helping negotiate the, the buy or the purchase of it. Um, the asking price was 6.4, and that includes all the cabinetry that goes with, which we figure, Rob, you can kind of jump in on this too, because you've seen it. Yeah, we that's a bargain. The, cabinet, the cabinetry is probably quarter of a million dollars just for the cabinets. Well, the um, collections, I, I feel the collections easily over $10 million. It could be, but there's, uh, but that's, that was the price that's, that was uh, agreed to. Uh-huh. And that's for clubs and books and artwork and you know, well, you've seen it, you've seen it. And it's anyway, they're they're gonna be packing up the the collection in uh the son-in-law's words, the end of the year. And I've asked him if it would be possible for me to come down and look at it one more time. And yeah. he said, Well, certainly just let me know. So I've been trying to arrange uh for Jason Bangild, who's the pro at Gearhart, who's not seen the collection. It's funny, he has a one of the trophies out of the collection was a Gearhart trophy. And a couple of his members there at Gearhart knew Dick and were friends of the family and talked, him out, talked the family out of this trophy. So Jason actually has a trophy, but he's never seen the collection. So I'm trying to figure out hmm. in the next few days to try to get him to meet me there to go through it. If not, I'm just going to look at it again myself. Yeah. And Rob, I'll be your driver. I'll be happy to take you down and back. I, I totally understand because it's, it's a, and I think the reason they want to pack it up and move it is they want to sell that condominium. Yeah. That condominium, which is one of the top floor. What do you call those penthouses? Can I just say for the listeners, Dick had a a whole condominium devoted to his collection in one of the bedrooms was an, an entire case of square toe irons, probably from the 18th and 19th centuries. And in addition, he bought the first portrait of the captain of Blackheath. And he had it in his living room in his actual condo where he lived. But he also bought the putter that's in that painting for $90,000. And he let all of us hold that putter. And I, I wrote about it on our website and the thickness and the weight of that putter is absolutely mind blowing. Yeah. He was, was, he was in negotiations to buy the other club. That's right. That's right. He bought the portrait, he bought the putter and he was negotiating. I don't know mm. if he ever got that done. I think he probably died before he did. 
Um, yeah, I think you're. I think that's right, Rob. Yeah, going through that collection as with him was a real experience. Um, but anyway, so let's it, shift it, gears just for a minute, guys. Um, is there a best kept secret in hickory golf today? I I don't I don't really think that there is, other than the fact that people the one you know you can put together a set of playable irons and find a putter that you can putt with. But the hardest thing is to find a good wood club. Yep. And I think people need to consider that when they're buying one. I mean, just don't buy an old wood club because somebody told them that was a good wood club, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, that, I mean, we basically, we tell people we'll make it good for you or give you your money back, you know I mean? So that's the hardest thing to find is a really good tea club or something like that, you know? Mm -hmm. And for some guys, it might be a brassier spoon, you know? They may not be able to hit a driver, you know? Sure. You know, one other thing that we never really covered too was the kind of the inspiration for this. Once we were all done with the GCS and we knew that that wasn't what we wanted, you know, the, every, every year uh, there was a group going and usually the group would be Ralph, Randy, Rob, and Ralph's dad. And they went to Scotland and played and there was Roger and myself and Chuck McMullen that would go. And so the seven of us, would, we'd always end up meeting up somewhere. And uh, they typically went up on the northern side. And Roger and I were, you know, we like Makwahanish and Troon and that sort of thing. We usually end up in St. Andrews. And, you know, the, the kind of the, I think the final thing that got it going was when we were in the Dunvegan and, and we just decided that, yeah, we're, we're good. We're, you know, we're going to do this. And so, you know, the next year we came over and we played what really was the first grail it was in 2000. And, and at that time, you know, everybody, it was really, man, this is great fun and let's do it next year and we'll call it the grail. You know, and so we all back went back in 2001 and, you know, that that's when that was the timing of when this all started. And then just a few people, really. And when we first got going, we had the Swedish guy. We had a bunch of guys that were involved and I made those little ball markers. And and so, you know, I mean, that that was the timing. And it really just came about among the friendship. Of, of the seven guys that were, that were really there. I mean, we were over there, we were playing golf and enjoying it and the Hickory game. And, you know, that's what, that, that's what kind of started, you know. One of the things that I enjoyed the most, probably my best ever golf trip was that first or second year of the society's life. Uh, and I think Roger, you were part of the planning. We, we made the trip to Scotland and there were, I don't know, there were a bunch of us. Um, we played for like 10 days or something like that. Yeah. And one or two courses every goddamn day. Uh, and it was just pure pleasure. Just a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, and we played some spectacular places. Um, 
Yeah, that was a good trip. And that was, uh, Scott Patrick was involved on the other side of that. Oh, yeah. He definitely yeah. did a lot more work than I did on that to get everything to work. But, you know, we, we it didn't take real long to make a lot of friends over there. And boy, as soon as you had friends over there, you could you, you could go over there and have a great old time and not spend a ton of money and play places that you normally wouldn't think about playing and eat places you wouldn't think about eating and visit homes you wouldn't. Yeah. Uh, my One of the biggest, biggest thrills I had once, once was I met a guy named Alan Stewart. Alan Stewart was a baker in Leavitt. And Alan Stewart lives in George Nichols' house. So mm-hmm. I had I had a, a baked good and coffee with him in the morning in George Nichols' living room. <laughs> you know, that was cool. <laughs> you know, he says, well, down the street there, there's Alex Patrick's house. And I said, you know, I always wondered about whether Alex Patrick had clubs made by Nicola. He says, well, what do you think? He didn't have a forge. There's his house. There's one block between their friends. What do you think? You know, and next door is Robert Nichols' house. Yeah, it was just amazing. But that you got to know a few people, played London Links with them, you know, and it didn't take very long to for for them to be as enthusiastic about hickory golf as we were. Roger, I mentioned we would talk about your book. Uh, if I'm trying to remember if you were able to get the family to share the archives with you, was that an issue? No. Um, all I can all I can surmise is that we were I was close. And we had a we had a um, an error of judgment on the part of the people that worked for me at my studio. We uh, uh, I had been communicating with um, one of the grandsons of George Nickel, and he had agreed to meet me with some of the archive material at St Andrews in '95. And I never heard anything back from him. Told him my schedule and everything. Never heard anything back. And as I was flying over, a letter was flying the other way to my studio to let me know that that would work and everything would be great. Mm-hmm. Whether they were just upset that I didn't show up or more likely um, the old man uh, who was the general manager of nickel when it closed was number one, a little, a little wary about letting anybody know how the thing came down. Cause it wasn't, it wasn't just competition that took them down was people but more than anything else there was a problem of his trust of americans because he had had a well-known author of golf collectible stuff uh in the states borrow a bunch of things from the family never gave them back and was was well known to do that and sell the stuff at auction and he just (laughs) didn't trust anybody so we i'm still chasing it but no roger can i just say when i read your book my biggest takeaway is that there is definitely nothing new in golf. The innovation back then was astonishing. Yeah. 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 It still oh, is. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's what fascinated me about Gibson because Gibson made, if anybody had a patent, they took it to Gibson and he made it. You know, I mean, he was the biggest manufacturer at one time in the world of golf clubs. And you know, they just did all this crazy stuff. They tried materials. They, you know, you name it, they did it. And that fascinated me because I was a club designer. I was a manufacturer. Mm-hmm. I want right. to know, you know, what, what was their thinking? But their stuff all ended up going in the dumpster in 53. And so there's nothing there. And mm-hmm. Scott Patrick's mom 
lives across the street from the Kinghorn Golf Course and a couple blocks from where the old factory used to be. And But there's nothing there. We tried putting stuff in the newspaper and, and postings at the community buildings and nothing ever showed up. Zero. So really strange. And Tad, you've played the Kinghorn Golf Course? No, I regretted that I never played it. In fact, I told Scott the other day, if I'm able to go over there this year at any point in time, I do want to play it because yeah. the, the story is, is that before they opened that William Gibson company had a tournament there and they paid more money or just as much money as the British open. And so all the American pros and everybody would go play up there before the open. So I just thought it'd be cool to walk around the grounds and, play it once so i looked at a aerial of it i posted it the other day i think you saw that and uh it looks yeah. extremely hard yeah <laughs> yeah it crisscrosses itself it's, constantly yeah scott says it's not a lot of fun yeah it looks it looks really really hard just two more questions guys and then we'll wrap it up uh can you each tell me a historical figure in golf you would have loved to most meet bobby jones no, no i i'd add Ben Hogan to that. He's not, he's not what you'd call historic, but yeah, that had been, that would have been fun to have met. I'd, I'm a great fan of McDonald Smith and I would love to have met mm. him mm -hmm. only not, not just because of, of my, my enjoyment of his career, but he came from such an incredible family that had so much influence on golf in the, in the States. That would have, uh, that whole Smith family, it would have been great to be together with them. Yeah. They were so they were involved at Diablo Country Club just outside of Oakland, yep. and at least two of them served as the head pro there. Mm -hmm. um, their father served as the greenskeeper there, and they're well known up right in there. But some of like there's one brother George nobody's ever heard of, but he was a really excellent player, won a lot on the West Coast. That would have been a cool family to sit down and have a beer with. Yeah, and they I I've heard some stories about. Um, McDon particularly McDonald's um, involvement with other people like Marion Hollins, which, which I, I even heard the story and I'm not sure it's, it, there's any credence to it, but that when uh, Hollins was talking about building and finding an architect, a recommendation that she got was McKenzie from McDonald Smith. Because mm -hmm. they all of course knew each other. I mean, they yeah. were all, there was such a small, it's a small, such a small country and and everybody's everybody knew each other that was in golf in in scotland and um when they got here they were still a big family roger next time you're in oakland you need to to go to that golf course oh i know i know because in, in the big case in the middle of the dining room are the last set of nickel irons that mcdonald smith played competitively with really yes they have his last set and if and interestingly, there's a it, he used a Mills putter, yeah. But his last set of irons are on display there. Well, I might have, uh, and I think I have one of his woods, because my friend John Cornelius, who passed away a couple of years ago, was the kid who ran the driving range at Oakmont. I'm sorry, yeah, Oakmont in California, when McDonald Smith was a touring pro there. And they were sort of father and son. Yeah. So he, 
I showed this this driver Brassy to him, and he said, "Yeah, absolutely, that's got to be his. The grip is so big, that's got to be one of his gloves." Cool. So I mean, that's going to end up at at Diablo. But, well, and and as you know, half the year they have all the boys' medals and trophies. Yeah, because they now split the year half and half with Carnoustie Golf Club. Carnoustie Golf Club. Who they play? Who they all sent their medals back to when they won them? Right. Yeah. Cool. I've got to talk to them I, at McKeezy again. I, I've got I've got so much stuff, and I don't know what I'm going to do with it. It's got to go there. Well, he'll love to hear that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm, I I got I have a lot of stuff. <laughs> He's got a lot of it already. But <laughs> hey, Roger, didn't uh, McDonald Smith tune his shafts underneath the bottom of his grip? Yeah, he did the bubble shaft. He come he kind of right below the grip on not all of his all of his clubs, but uh, some of his clubs apparently he had been trying the idea of a bubble shaft, so he'd carve away some of the. Um, some of the wood right below the grip. And it sort of effectively is a bubble shaft. He had great big hands and his grips. He had these grips that, like the one on this club that's probably a, like a super jumbo grip because he had great big hands. Yeah. Wanted a little bit of whip up there by the grip. Right. Yeah. And uh, guys, we have a question from Instagram from Goose. Hmm. What play irons are your favorites? So uh, for all three of you, Tell us what your favorite play irons are. Let's start with you, Roger. Well, I've always played nickels. Um, I I bounce back and forth between. Um, I haven't. I don't play a set. <laughs> Dad's laughing because I have about five sets that I switch in and out and move around. But I've always played the softer metal um, nickels. I've got a my my set now is eight irons and they're none of them are matched to anything there are a couple three of them that are probably the ones that nickel sold through burke mm -hmm. the, way the way they're marked but um i have a set of stainless that i don't like quite as well that are also a mismatched set but i've never i've i've had sets i've never liked playing with any of them because they're yeah never good consistent yeah how about you rob well, in my the ones that I play in my bag, probably the club I probably use the most is a Spalding, simple Spalding backspin, mashy niblick. Uh, but I've got a couple of Forgans in there I really like, and the niblick is a Forgan Peter Pan. That's just an ex exquisite club. Uh, and then there's of course the Willie Dunn putter. Yeah, that's still playing Frankenstein. Frankenstein is right over here in the rack. Uh, it got to the point where it felt like it was mushy. <laughs> <laughs> it probably was. <laughs> John Henry Williams has told me if I give it to him, he'll bring it back to me and it'll play like it was brand new, which he probably would. Ooh. But then it wouldn't be Frankenstein anymore. Yeah, there would, there's, there's way too much history there. <laughs> Tad, Absolutely. do you have favorite play clubs? Yeah, I have uh, two. I have a set of original Gibsons. The woods are Danglewood, and the irons are regular Hickory, and the Domini Sander uh, Niblick, and I have a, uh, a a Gibson putter that I like, and uh, and then I have a set of my own clubs that I make, which are uh, 
Palm All Woods in uh, OA Irons with a putter, which is uh, called the Lynx model. It's a wooden mallet. Mm-hmm. Those are the two. And I do play originals still. I have, uh, we have a s- small group here now, about six guys. And so uh, that gives me an opportunity to go out and play my hickories with them. And so I play some original days and some of my own some days. So it's kind of fun. And your shop is uh, almost ready to go? Shop is uh, within 30 days will be pretty much ready to go. Neat. Oh, you know what? We never talked about Frank. Do you want to talk about Frank just for a minute? Mumphrey? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I meant I meant to ask you guys about Frank Bumfrey. Could you could you I met him once at Mid Pines. Could you tell me a little bit about Frank? Oh yeah. So uh, Roger and I were at the NHC at Oakhurst and we're standing around getting ready to go get cleaned up to go eat. And there's this guy standing there. And uh, you know, what's your name? <laughs> you know, I'm Tad Moore and Roger Hill and I don't know. What are you doing for dinner? Well, I don't know. You guys know anywhere to eat? And he, well, come on with us, Frank. We're going downtown. Da 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 da. And so, I don't know. Robbie might even have been there. I mean, we were there with like five or six people, I think. Who walks in but Bumphrey? You know, hey, great, glad you made it. You know, well, before oh, the evening's yeah. over, we we have his life history and all that stuff and. He became one of the one of the best guys for the Society of Hickory Golfers ever. It was just amazing, you know. Just a chance. How you doing at the NHC? He was professional um, and was attached to the Cleveland Clinic. And Frank talked about. I think he was the. He's, I think I remember this right. He was the first one to ever run an MRI machine. And this company had this machine that they wanted somebody to try, and none of the none of the doctors on staff wanted to take that chance. And he said, so I just raised my hand, and he said, I ended up traveling all over the world because of that, teaching other people how to run this machine. Mm. Uh, he was he was over the top smart, yeah. and and he loved LB's moonshine. <laughs> yeah, I think he was. I think he was really a genius, you know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, he was born in England, grew up in Guyana, I think, went back to England, uh, served his time in the military, and then he went to school, became a doctor, and he ended up in Toronto at the hospital up there, and then from there, they came. he came down to Cleveland Clinic and uh, pretty much was the head of one of the big departments there at the Cleveland Clinic. Quite a guy. I think he, if I uh, remember right, he played on the national rugby team for the country of Kenya. Yep. Yeah, maybe it was Kenya, yeah. I think so. But he, he played <laughs> on the national team. It's like really yeah. Yeah. Hell of a guy. Yeah. I did I, I worked on the the um, bylaws with him. Yes. He was chairman and oh my God. You know, just voluminous knowledge about everything. He'd been, was that uh, whatever the coding um, group was that, uh, whatever the coding system, he was the, like in, in the coders group and, and there were like, developed it. members. 
he had lots of stories to tell. So he had a real strong understanding of how small groups like this work and how they needed to work and what we needed to put in the bylaws. And boy, yeah. has it proved true. <laughs> my own, my. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cool guy. And that's how, but Rob, that's how we came about meeting yep. up. Well, yeah. thanks for sharing it. Yeah. Yeah. Wild man. He always had a little pint with him too. Well, he, he he greeted me on the second tee box at Mid Pines my first year there with a with a flask, <laughs> and I didn't know him, but he was just such a nice man. I think it was probably the year that he passed. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, he was something else. Well, I want to thank you, gentlemen, for sharing your recollections and for participating in the Plus Four podcast. Thanks so much for your time. Yeah, hey, I was going to uh, add one more thing, Rob. You asked about are there any secrets in Hickory Golf? And yeah. the thought that came to mind when you asked that was, the answer really is no. To me, the wonderful thing about the Society of Hickory Golfers is that almost to a person, there's nobody there that won't share an answer to a question anybody has about how to do something, how to fix something, where to find something. I think that's one of the beauties of Hickory Golf is it's, it's such a close group. And I've not run across anyone yet who will say, no, I can't tell you that. And I, I think that's one of the great things about the society.